I'd like to start out by giving a little bit of historical background on this question of complexity. I wanted sort of a very big picture historical background so you can understand historically what the significance, where this, my work here, my project fits into, my argument fits into the flow of ideas, the historical flow of ideas. So Thomas Hobbes, I'm sure you've all heard of Thomas Hobbes, um, with the Leviathan, this marked a watershed moment in political thought. Because with the Leviathan, basically, the social contract between individuals became paramount in our thinking about social order. And all of the groups, the social groups, and the other orders within society were marginalized in the imagination of thinkers. They became secondary. They became a kind of background noise. So if you read the Leviathan, how much time does Thomas Hobbes spend discussing the life of different groups in society? Do you, do you remember him talking a lot about the life of different groups? There's one group he talks a lot about, the Catholic Church. And, and it's not in order to understand how can the Catholic Church be more successful. It's basically to, to tell us the church is the enemy of order and we need to domesticate it and put it under the state so that we can have one order that is coherent for everybody and that, and that prevents war. So Hobbes set a new tendency to think about society in terms of a giant contract a social contract between lots of individuals who sign up in some way or authorize a common authority. This is the Hobbesian story. Locke tells a similar story with some uh, modifications, important modifications. Uh, Rousseau also has a contractarian story, but he believes there should be a smaller state. It should be more like a kind of assembly, like a city-state. Um, and then we have Kant, who also talks about the state as bringing about a kind of a social order coming out of the state of nature. Uh, this, this continues right through to Rawls um, and to many contemporary thinkers. Their general paradigm of social order is that we have a social contract among individuals who authorize a constitution and authorize a constitutional authority, like, say, a state or government to rule over society and bring order. Um, and then you have people like Max Weber who talk about, um, you know, uh, the administrative state. And, uh, and, and, and this is a way also of understanding the state as being at the center of social order, the center of social gravity in some way. Um, but then we have an interesting shift. In the 20th century, we have a number of movements, intellectual movements, that begin to question, begin to question this kind of monistic, statist, integrationist project. And they begin to wonder, have we gone too far? Have we gone too far in thinking that society is one social contract? Have we gone too far in thinking that we need a sovereign to introduce order into the life, the fabric of society for everybody. Have we underestimated the value of complexity? 
have we overestimated the value of uniformity? Um, and, and so you get these uh, thinkers, who I'm going to be uh, touching on shortly, who push back against the um, kind of monism of Hobbes and his successors. They push back against this contractarian, monistic idea of social order. So uh, basically, these thinkers uh, come from different fields. We have legal pluralism. We have political thinkers um, in the early 20th century. Uh, in fact, all of the bibliography, not all, but a lot of it is at the end of your handouts of these, these thinkers from different fields. Um, you have economic thinkers as well who think about the complexity of economic activity. And there's a kind of revalorization of social complexity. So it's given a new life, if you want, the concept of complexity. And, and, and so we think, why is complexity important? Um, what kind of complexity is useful? Um, what is the alternative to the monistic sovereign state, right? This is the question. What is the alternative, right? So I am going to lay out the argument, okay, of the paper. And basically, there's a negative part of my argument, okay, which tries to show that a sovereign state-based order tends to colonize diverse social groups in pathological ways, in ways that are not functional. A sovereign centralized state tends to usurp, colonize, um, override the orders that are inherent in different social groups with its own order to remake them in its own image and likeness um, in, in a way that harms human flourishing. That's the negative, uh, the negative argument, which is probably going to take up most time. The positive argument is that we need a certain type of social pluralism in order to flourish as human beings. We need a certain type of pluralism in, in, our, in society. Um, and in order to respect that pluralism or complexity, we need a form of coordination that is voluntarist, localist, and bottom-up. And I will explain what I mean by these three things later. Voluntarist, localist, and bottom-up. Okay, so far so good. So now let's get into the, into the meat a little bit of this. And we can start by just asking what is complexity? So social complexity is the sharing of social space by a plurality of individuals and groups pursuing a wide variety of independent ends, yet motivated or compelled to interact with each other on a more or less regular basis. So you have different individuals and groups, independent individuals and groups, pursuing different purposes, but who need to interact with each other in the same social space. And that is what I'm calling complexity, okay? Um, so why is complexity a good thing? 
Well, Hobbes told us why complexity is a bad thing. So Hobbes took it from the other direction, and he basically said, the more groups you have, the more claims you have, the more potential for civil war. We need to unify and integrate. We need to get rid of this complexity because it's destructive. The feudal order has to go. The, the church, the idea of an independent church has to go. We need one state to bring order. Oops, that was it. I went too far. Even the rules here probably, there are rules, implicit rules, social rules against that kind of behavior. So I might have broken an informal rule. So I was just trying to make my point. This is what Hobbes would have done. He would have said, no, we need order. Um, this is a man who grew up in a civil war, you know? So, I mean, <laughs> you could see why he would have had that attitude, maybe. So, here are some defenses that we get of social complexity. Defense number one, it's, inevitable, it's an inevitable consequence of human freedom. Human freedom is intrinsically a value that has to be respected, right? It's a normative argument we have to respect freedom, but if we respect freedom, people will do what they want. And if they do what they want, they'll go and they'll build their little worlds. Well, not little worlds, that's, that's too uh, pejorative. They'll build their worlds, they'll build their social world in different ways when you give them freedom. So, um, so in a way you could say, oh, even if you don't like complexity, even if you think it's a nuisance, annoying, you don't like it, gets in your way maybe a bit. Um, let's see, what exactly are you proposing? That we crush it? That we destroy it? That we prevent it? How can you do that? The only way to do that is to crush freedom. To crush freedom. That's the only way to prevent complexity, is to crush human freedom. To stop people from organizing, associating, choosing, making choices about how to live. Um, so that's a kind of an argument like, just accept it because it's, <laughs> if people are free, this will happen, okay? Um, so it's not exactly always a very positive argument for complexity. It's more like, it's kind of like indirect. Because of freedom, you're going to get complexity. And so we just need to manage it, okay? It's not, it's not necessarily a celebration of complexity. It's more like saying we need freedom. We need to protect freedom. Uh, it's a value. You're going to get complexity when people do their own thing. That's just going to happen right? Because they're free. So that's, that's um, I have, I, I think I, I listed a few people under that, which were like Buchanan, James Buchanan, Chandran Kukathis, Robert Nozick, John Rawls. John Rawls is not exactly a big celebrator of complexity, in my opinion, but he accepts it as a consequence of freedom. He sort of says, you know, if you let people, uh, you know, you have to allow for basic liberties and this is the consequence. You get a complex society. You get lots of different background cultures, etc., etc. Okay. Argument number two. Complexity is a necessary precondition for diverse identities, projects, and ways of life to thrive and enjoy social recognition. So this is a more positive argument. And it's to say that Will Kimlicka, James Tully, uh, some British pluralists, different people have made this argument. But um, Kimlicke is a good illustration of this. He thinks that indigenous people in Canada or, or America and other parts of the world, uh, they need a societal culture. They need their own type of culture in order to find meaning in their social life. 
and in order to access social goods, they need to be able to make sense of their social world. So therefore, um, it's not acceptable for the state to just say, we are a sovereign state, and you indigenous people just have to get with the program and just accept the Western way of life and our Western values and our Western constitutional order, accept this order, which is quite individualistic, accept it because you're in our territory. You're in the territory. And then Kukata says, well, actually, they were there before you. I mean, this is one of his points. They were there before you. You came, and now you want to tell them how to live. They need a certain kind of culture. You don't have the right to take away their culture. So he says, you have to give exception, exceptions to your rules. You have to carve out a sort of uh, sub-constitutional space, an alternative constitutional space um, for them to live their lives. That creates constitutional complexity and pluralism. Third uh, defense could be complexity is an asset for more efficiently solving problems of social coordination in a large and, com and diverse society. An asset. It's actually a positive attribute of a society. Um, why? Um, I'm going to give you the really quick version. Um, this comes from Institutional Economics, Eleanor Ostrom, and many people who follow her, and it's in the bibliography at the end. But basically, what they say is that um, every problem of collective choice or public choice is, is conditioned by very particular circumstances. It's, it's, it, it occurs in a very special social context, always. And I think they call it the, the social choice situation or something like that. Um, and that situation can be only mastered cognitively, understood by the people who are immediately involved. They can understand the, the context very well. What are the risks? What are the dangers? What are the pitfalls? Um, what are the perverse consequences of my choices? All of that, the harms, the benefits, they can make an assessment because they are so close to the context. They understand that social context and activity. And so um, they actually give the example of policing. And they found that this decentralized police system, which the conventional wisdom of administrative um, let's say, administrative studies, studies of public administration, was that this is cha too chaotic. We need centralized administration to make things work better. Centralization was the catchword of public administration in the 19, say, 50s, 60s. This was their way. They thought this was actually the best way to make it efficient. Bring the control to the top. Someone who understands and can coordinate from the top. So they compare centralized police systems with decentralized. And they show that high, highly decentralized and somewhat chaotic police systems with lots of decentralization, they give better results, the citizens are happier, more crimes are solved, etc., etc., etc. Why would this be? Why would this be? So they, they ask, they wonder about this, and they create a theory to explain why a more complex institutional order is more efficient um, and even slightly more chaotic institutional order is more efficient. 
And I'm not going to give the details of that, but it's just to say that they see complexity as a positive good for society. It's, it's actually really beneficial to have this highly articulate and even independent units working independently. Okay, so that's the third argument for complexity. We had inevitable consequence of freedom. It's a necessary precondition for identity and a way of life. Um, we have it as a, a tool for, for solving social problems, a useful tool, because you have a highly articulate social structure. It makes the, 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 it makes the problems more efficient, the, the solutions more efficient. And then we have the fourth approach, which is that complexity provides an infrastructure for a flourishing and virtuous and well-lived human life. An infrastructure for a flourishing, virtuous, well-lived human life. This is a, an ethical approach. And this approach actually is coming out of Aristotle. And Aristotle doesn't theorize complexity, right? He doesn't have a theory of complexity. But um, he understands that society is built from little pieces. And he does understand that families are kind of a basic unit for, this, for a city. Um, but uh, I think, I guess, um, my, this, this approach, this ethical approach, is really underdeveloped because you have McIntyre, for example, one, one famous philosopher, virtue ethics philosopher, who thinks that bureaucracy, state bureaucracy, imposes the logic of efficiency on communities and in a way is corrosive of community life. He thinks that the state has a logic of action and governance that undermines um, vibrant communities and uh, standardizes and homogenizes the way we live um, and renders local communities incoherent in some way because they respond to the incentives of state regulation they change their rules so that they can adjust to what the state says. And then they find that they become incoherent in some way and individualistic. They lose their way because they are so influenced by uh, state laws and regulations. So you could say that McIntyre, in his critique of the monistic, administrative, centralizing, homogenizing state, in that critique, implicitly, he wants more complexity, right? It's clear, he wants more complexity. He thinks the state simplifies too much. But he doesn't give an argument for complexity. He doesn't, he hardly uses the word complexity, actually. So it's like he's giving us a hint. He's saying, yeah, the state should not simplify so much. But he doesn't really flip it around and say, okay, but I'm going to tell you why complexity matters, how it works, the dynamics of a complex society. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't give this, this argument. Yeah, I think that um, subsidiarity can be a way to understand how, um, in a way, uh, the relation between the parts and the whole. So subsidiarity can help us to understand that there should be a certain priority for local initiative, a priority of action at the local level, I think. And that the idea of subsidiarity, as I understand it, is that if the local unit can manage a problem, then we should let it manage the problem, right? But as, as um, a number of thinkers 
have pointed out, um, subsidiarity doesn't uh, grapple very much with the problem of power. And I think the literature on subsidiarity, the theories of subsidiarity, don't, um, don't seem to grapple enough with the problem of power and power imbalances. Um, because they seem to just say, I'm going to provide a guiding principle for authorities to follow, right? But what if the authority is a state? Well, of course, the state will interpret subsidiarity in its own favor, generally speaking. I mean, the European Union is a good example. The European Union doesn't apply subsidiarity in a coherent way. Um, it's more like a managerial principle for them, like how we manage our resources. Um, so I'm not saying I don't want to dismiss subsidiarity as a tradition. I mean, I think I'm very friendly to that tradition. And what I'm doing is in that tradition, um, starting from the idea of the good life. But I think in a way, um, probably my argument is looking at the way the social infrastructure should function um, to, pro to help people live more virtuous lives. Um, so I think it fits into the logic of subsidiarity. Um, but, uh, but I think I want to put the state in the background. I, I kind of want to not think as much about the state. Um, and, and, and you know that subsidiarity was introduced into the Catholic Church at a time when the state was, very, was quite strong and when the state was sort of a way of, was perceived as, a way, as an instrument for helping the working classes to better their lot by, by having better regulations. So I think um, the principles are good, but we need to update subsidiarity in a world in which the state cannot be the center anymore, in my opinion. But that's a, long, a longer answer. This is my short answer. I believe you can be a universalist and, and hold on to complexity and pluralism. Um, and I'm going to try to maybe explain, so, yeah. Then it's only about the application of universal rules. Yeah. I think you have to distinguish between ethical principles or normative principles and, um, and good institutional order. And uh, I think this is just a confusion. I mean, it's a confusion that really has... Isaiah Berlin is an example of a philosopher who talks a lot about freedom, negative freedom. Um, and he really is, a, is really uh, suspicious of the idea that the state should impose a particular conception of the good. He thinks that's dangerous. And so whenever, usually whenever I talk about ethics and the importance of living a good life, the relevance of, a, of, of living a flourishing life for politics and for civil order, people go on the defensive and they often think, I'm going to say, and now the state should tell us what the good life is. They, they, they kind of think that's the jump I'm going to make. No, the opposite. I'm going to say because of the nature of human flourishing, you cannot have the state tell you what a good life is. And I'm going to give that an argument now. Uh, so bear with me. I'm going to try to get that argument on the table. Uh, there's another guy, uh, another uh, two authors, Rasm Rasmussen and Denial, uh, and Den Isle, um, who, who wrote a book, Norms of Liberty, it's called Norms of Liberty. They defend a liberal regime, a freedom-based regime, uh, from Aristotelian ethics, starting with Aristotelian ethics, okay, and with the idea of a good life, a virtuous life. They say that because 
human good is pluralistic. We have many different ways to live a good life. Therefore, we should have a highly permissive political order that permits individuals to live the good in different ways. Because the good is inherently pluralistic because individuals are different. And each individual has to find the way, their path, to live a good life. It cannot be the same path. My path can't be yours, can't be his, can't be hers. It's not the same path for lots of reasons. And, and so uh, they say, so we need a permissive order with some meta-norms, just very, very permissive norms, um, and then let people work out how they live within these very permissive norms. And so uh, what's, what's, what's the limitation in their approach? You, would, you might think, oh, well, then they've already done it, so why are you doing it, David? What are you doing here? They've already given the argument. Well, what I would say is they gave an argument for a meta-norms meta for a general order for society. And then individuals have to freely choose how to live. They do not talk about the infrastructure. Infrastructure. That means the different groups that make up the units of social order. They don't talk about that in any detail. They say man is social, the human being is social. Fair enough. We live in community. Fair enough. We need community. Fair enough. But they do not have any ontology, any social ontology. Basically, it's just individuals and a meta-order with a state or a government enforcing a meta-order with freedom of contract, etc., and maybe peace, you know, non-violence. And so I say, great, um, I like your argument, but I think we need to take it another step. We need to start looking at the, uh, at, at the way society is actually configured, the parts. What are the parts of society? They're not just people. They're not just persons. They're groups. And they don't talk about groups. They hardly talk about groups at all. So, so what do I want to do? I want to say is, okay, I'm going to come in near Aristotelian, virtue ethics, Aristotelian, I love this. I want to bring this to bear on the problem of complexity, but I want to be attentive to group life. I want to really bring group life into the foreground to understand how group life helps to bring order to society. Understanding the dynamics of groups is probably one of the most important uh, keys to understanding what makes for a successful society, a society that functions well. Necessary. It's a necessary uh, consideration, and it needs to be studied carefully, how groups work um, uh, of different sizes and scales, but then also how they interact. And so it's not enough to... A contractarian might say, oh, we just form contracts with each other, we, you know, free contracts, we generate order from contracts. Fair enough. We do generate order from interpersonal contracts. But I think it's relevant that we have about a thousand different and more types of order cohabiting the same space. I think that's a relevant consideration um, when you think about how the macro order comes about and also the micro orders get regulated and get, what's the word, reconciled with a macro order. Um, okay, so... The fundamental value, I want to say, um, the pillar, the cornerstone of good society, I would suggest, is the freedom to flourish. The freedom to flourish, which is the capacity of individuals and groups to direct their lives toward personal and communal flourishing 
in ways that are responsive to their own rationally informed and uncoerced choices. So it's important, I think, to, to, think, to think this through. The capacity of individuals and groups to direct their lives toward personal and communal flourishing, both in ways that are responsive to their own rationally informed and uncoerced choices. So let's supposing that I'm, I'm um, a social engineer and I decide I want to give you welfare. I want to give you guys welfare. I have a plan. Okay, uh, right, I have my bureaucracy. Let's see, I'm going to make my institution. I'm going to distribute welfare. I'm going to make your lives go really well. And you will get like, you know, I'll give you little paychecks when you behave well. And as long as, you know, you don't, you know, commit crimes or hurt each other, I'll let you have an, a, a, a basic universal income. And I'm going to like, then you can just enjoy it and you go fishing, you could do whatever you want. But I am going to help you live a better life. I'm going to, I'm going to give, you, give you flourishing lives, you know, with my welfare distribution system. Okay. This is totally at, at odds with the freedom to flourish because um, flourishing for a human being does not exist if another person gives it to you. I mean, if another person simply gives you a flourishing life, like they give me like a TV, then I'm not flourishing because I have not chosen the path of flourishing. I have not made the choice myself. I have to choose my own flourishing. Otherwise, it's an imposition and it doesn't engage my rationality and my choices. So uh, that's why autonomy is part of flourishing. It's actually an essential ingredient of flourishing to be free, to freely choose. So if a welfare uh, officer knocks on my door and checks up and helps me you know, live a better life, maybe this is possible, but um, it has, to, it has to happen in a way that completely engages my rationality and my choices. It has to somehow preserve my choices in this matter. Um, so, no, we can facilitate flourishing, but we can't give flourishing, okay, to human beings. To a cow, probably yes. Because a cow, you just put them in the little field, you give them the grass they need, you, you, know, you milk them if they need to be milked, depending on your, how you view their flourishing, you give them what you think they need, okay? Um, and that's it. The cow doesn't, isn't not going to say, I really want to cooperate in this process. I want to have a say in how you give me flourishing. No, the cow doesn't do this. But we, we do. If my plan involves giving everyone a basic income, right, um, as long as I understand that the only thing that I'm doing is possibly facilitating their flourishing. I'm not giving them flourishing. I'm not really giving them flourishing because they will have to take that basic income and they will have to decide, okay, how, what do I do with it? And actually, I, haven't, I don't have a strong opinion about basic income. I mean, maybe I, I could see some arguments uh, for it, but, I don't, but, but my main point is that we must be clear on the difference between giving someone a condition that they can then use an opportunity and giving them flourishing. We don't give them flourishing. Um, so that's why the freedom to flourish as a good, I think is so important because let's supposing we give the basic income to everybody. One person, you know, builds a company, saves up money, builds a company, 
does very well with the income. Another person becomes an alcoholic and maybe becomes a drug addict with the same money. Does that person flourish? No. Did the welfare system celebrate that he became a drug addict? I don't think so. Um, but they wanted another outcome. Um, but it's really complicated understanding how you will, what will happen after you give people things. That's not an easy thing to predict. Okay, so I said the freedom to flourish is important, but then what is, what is it to flourish? Okay, this is a big topic, so I'm not going to be able to talk much about it, but I at least want to say a few words about it. Um, coming from this classical approach, Aristotelian approach that is kind of rehabilitated by Alistair McIntyre, we could say that here are a few elements or aspects of human flourishing. One, rational deliberation and choice is part of a flourishing life. If you're not able to, in general, if you're an, of course, a baby cannot rationally deliberate, <laughs> obviously, um, but I think we can understand that the fullness of its capacities, when its potential is fully realized as a human being, its, its normal human capacities are fully developed. The normal outcome is that it develops its reasoning abilities. And so an adult, we expect an adult that is living a good life to be reasoning in their choices, right? Using rational deliberation, right? And it's not just that they're told what to do all the time, right? It's not like, I came here because, my, my, I don't know, my colleague said I had to come here. And I gave a talk because my colleague said I had to. No, no, I came freely. I, I thought about it. You know, it's an opportunity, etc., etc. Okay, second, rounded development of human potential capacities, rounded development, full development of our capacities. Okay, so for example, um, uh, here we have our rational capacities. I mean, it's kind of, um, it seems arbitrary for people to talk about moral, moral capacities, but let's say something like um, compassion, um, so as a virtue. Caring about someone who is vulnerable, uh, caring about someone who's suffering. Um, this is a kind of a spiritual and moral perfection of the human being, in my opinion. And I think certainly the whole Christian tradition would, would think this. And I think a lot of secular citizens value compassion as well and believe that it's an important virtue. Um, and this comes about by helping the child recognize when someone needs help and, and, and the child sees the adult's reaction to someone who's suffering. And then the child sort of calibrates its own reaction as well by imitating the adult in some way, empathizing with the adult reaction. So there's a whole social psychology of how children learn these reactions, these habits. Um, and uh, even practical wisdom Making good judgments, uh, that's, a, that's a perfection of the human person, uh, to be able to make sound judgments, right? So we call it prudence, practical wisdom, good judgment. Um, and usually, if you have, don't have much practical wisdom, you make destructive choices that get out of control. You do things that, that create a lot of chaos. Um, you don't need to create chaos, maybe, but you don't foresee the consequences of your choices. Um, you don't think through what you're doing. Um, there's a qualitative judgment you have to make. Uh, do I marry this person? Do I not? Do I, oh, they're the big choices, right? 
do I uh, keep up this friendship? Do I not? Even if the person maybe is a bit toxic, this relationship is toxic for me, how do I handle this situation? All these complex choices. In your family, growing up, in your home, you learn to process complex information and to make better choices. Um, and if you don't learn this at home, then you might have difficulty making uh, choices under conditions of complexity, and you might have to catch up later. Um, so, so, so basically, there's a developmental process where we acquire certain kinds of virtues or character traits, positive character traits, habits, that help us to do good and help us to respond well to situations and to people. Okay, um, so we've got rational deliberation choice. We've got full development of human potential. Um, then we've got socialization because we're social, inherently social creatures. So we need to learn to relate to others in a functional way, in a way that is, um, in a way that is peaceful, in a way that is friendly, in a way that um, is reciprocal and that helps us, let's say, uh, achieve worthwhile projects together. So um, socialization is also a fundamental part of human flourishing, is learning to socialize and be with others in a peaceful, harmonious, friendly way. Um, the fourth characteristic of the good is it's complex. Uh, it's complex in the sense that first, there are lots of different types of needs that I have. Um, biological needs, I need health, health needs, I need my, health, my physical health, my psychological health. Um, I need, uh, for example, I need friendship. Probably I need deep friendship. I need a friendship that's lasting and that's real and that somehow uh, a friendship in which I can express myself, who I am, and I can show parts of myself that I cannot show to the post office, person at the post office. Okay, so if I go to the post office for that friendship, then I will probably be disappointed. Um, I, I mean, I know that people can be really good friends with the post officers, the people in post offices, and pharmacists, for example. But it's possible that I will be disappointed if I seek out that good of friendship when I go to the post office or the bank. I might be, just, I might be disappointed uh, because of the type of activity it is, the type of context it is, social context it is, and the goals of that activity, which are in many ways utilitarian um, that have to do with just sending a post, a letter. Um, Okay, so uh, do I, if I go to my pharmacist and want spiritual redemption, then I will probably be disappointed. Probably my pharmacist will not be able to minister to my soul and help me find a path of spiritual awakening. And probably I'm in the wrong place. I made a mistake when I went to the pharmacist looking for that. So maybe I needed to find a church or find some kind of spiritual community or something like that, okay? Something different. So every type of group and association and institution ministers to a particular type of human good. And they're all different. They're, they're very different. Um, so, uh, so, so 
I guess what I want to say is that we are very complex creatures who have very different types of needs. And, um, and I'm kind of jumping ahead to my argument by saying these needs cannot be met in only one social structure. We need lots of different types of society, social groups to meet our needs. Okay, and then the last one is objectivity. Okay, what I mean by this is the good is independent from my mind and independent from my preferences or my desires. Obviously, it's not going to be easy for me to defend this in front of you and say, to give you a definitive proof that ethics is objective, right? I mean, I don't think there's such a, I don't think you could prove it. But I would say that our language, our practices, our habits, our ways of relating to others, and our moral language presuppose that morality, that ethics is objective, is mind independent. Um, and so if I said to you, I believe that you all owe me 50 euros. You all owe me 50 euros. Um, and you say to me, why? Why do, we, why do we owe you for 50 euros? And I say, because I want 50 euros from each of you. That's why you owe it to me. Because I have a preference for that. I believe you should owe it to me. So you owe it to me, therefore. No, you'd ask for an argument what is it about our relationship objectively? What is it about it that makes us owe you this money? Um, or I say, you know, the very best way of life in the world is probably just watching TV all day. That's the best way to live. And it's really fun and there's no better way. So don't tell me that someone who conducts an orchestra or is a great artist or is a Nobel Peace Prize winner or somebody who's like, gotten great grades in their university exams or something, uh, or has wonderful friendships, don't tell me that this is a better way of life than someone who watches TV all day. Because I know the TV watching is better. Well, of course, that very logic that I'm giving you would be a logic of objectivity, because I'm making an objective claim that one activity is superior to the other. Um, but if you want to be a complete relativist, then you'd say, Whatever I think is good, is good. Whatever you think is good, is good. But no society, no society acts as if they believe this. No, no society actually conducts its affairs based on that belief. Because if they did, we would have total anarchy. We would have anarchy because everyone would do whatever the hell they want to do. And nobody, there'd, be no, there'd be no way to say to them, what you did is wrong, period, is wrong. This is a big, big argument, but I, 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 don't want to, uh, um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Um, but these are the main features of the good, the way I understand it. Okay, so now this is a really important part of my argument. And this is to get on to what a normative order. So we're social creatures. We're social by nature. Each one of us inhabits, each one of us participates in social life, in some capacity, all of us. Now, when you move into a social environment, when you move into a social group, any group, you need to know how to behave. You need to know how to orient your activities, your conduct, 
your choices, your attitudes even, your attitudes, your judgments. You need some criteria to guide you when you, when you go to university, when you're at home with your family, when you're in your flatmate, your flat with your, you know, your flatmates. When you get on a bus, when you walk down the street, when you come into this classroom, um, when you go to a church if you're a believer, um, any uh, social context that you enter, any social group you enter, you need to know, you need a framework to orient your choices and your, your actions in that group. It's not a blank slate. You need orientation. Okay, so all social groups have public signals to indicate um, how their members should behave, how they should structure their activities, um, what is a good choice, a bad choice, a good way to, to behave, bad way. Mm. And this is what I call a normative order. A normative order is a set of public signals indicating, mm, giving a sense of meaning and purpose to the activities of a group, giving them structure, giving them meaning, um, and helping us understand what's the best way to behave. That's a normative order. Now, you might think a normative order is rules. That might be the first thing that comes to your mind. You're in a law school, so you probably have a prejudice towards thinking that order is rules. Okay, but actually, order is much bigger than rules. Order is things like symbols or narratives. Order is identity. Order is examples Exemplary conduct, exa uh, heroes, anti-heroes, that's order. So, for example, when you give an honorary doctorate to somebody, you're creating order. Because you're, you're, you're basically saying, this person is an example of how to be a good scholar. Is that a rule? No. It's not a rule. It's just an example. Okay? And, and every social group has some kind of system of signals for helping us understand how to act. We have freedom, so we have some maneuver, we have space, to, you know, it's not that they tell us everything, but they give us a framework. And so uh, when this framework becomes destabilized, we have confusion and we're not sure what to do and we feel disoriented. So for example, I'll give you an example. Um, in Spain, there was a rule that you had to wear a mask in the street, right, all the time. They removed that rule, and then every, there was a lot of confusion, and people didn't really know what to do. And some people had their masks on, others didn't, and there was this kind of confusion and uncertainty, especially in the first days after they, they lifted the rule. People like predictability, they like to have some kind of structure of rules to know what to do. Okay, so why institutional normative diversity is necessary for human flourishing? Um, okay, so basically, this is a pretty simple argument, I think. So, so I think if you just think about the different types of social group you have in society, 
I just give, I'm just going to give you some examples. So we have here, I think I said university, technical school, church, athletic club, trade association, philanthropic society, volunteering community, dance club, uh, museum, chess club. I think I said, okay, we could just keep going. Uh, lots of different examples. Swimming club or swimming pool association. Okay. Um, beach club, uh, a bar is a type of association, you could say, because I, I'm using this in a very broad sense. Uh, a kind of um, a group that connects people together in a common activity over time. Um, it's not just that we meet once, but that we actually have some activity that is repetitive. Um, and we have some common purpose, even if it's just enjoying ourselves. That's okay. That's a common purpose as well. So I think that the point is, you think about all these different types of groups. Or to give you a clear example, like say a car manufacturing company and a university. The purpose of a university, at least in my opinion, is not simply to make money. Although... It has to make money to continue. Uh, the purpose of a car manufacturing company is basically to sell cars and make money and pay their employees. Um, it's not to advance knowledge, I don't think. Maybe some technical knowledge that is instrumental that they need to get more cars, but they're not really dedicated to the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge and truth. And Right? University is. Um, or at least... I believe that's part of the mission of the university. So if you apply the logic of a car manufacturing company to a university, what happens? What do you think happens? I mean, I don't know. No, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I mean, I guess, I think what happens is you start to degrade the mission of the university because you instrumentalize its activities to the generation of profit. Uh, you treat it as purely a business, just like any other business. And I think that logic, mercantilist logic, is um, problematic if it is absolutized or if it is given too much of a dominant position in the university. This is a confusion of normative orders, where one normative order takes over the other. Or think of the normative order of rankings, right? Rankings are a form of social esteem, recognition. Universities chase after rankings. Now... What's more important, the internal normative order of the university of learning and apprenticeship and scholarship or the external normative order of recognition, right, of rankings? Um, if you chase rankings too much, then you say, mm, we have to sacrifice here, sacrifice there. You have to make a lot of sacrifices to get higher rankings um, because you, the rules of the rankings are not designed for your university. They're designed for all the universities in the world or in Europe or wherever. Um, so th that's just to give you a sense of why we need these diverse normative orders. And this is important. These normative orders have to be independent. They have to have some independence. They can't be completely uh, porous or completely um, dependent on other normative orders. They have to be able to be self-regulating in some sense, self-sustaining. Okay, so let me maybe just make this a little shorter, the last part, and just say that the modern state 
um, insofar as it conceives public authority as concentrated uniquely within its own bosom, in its own life, in its own institution, and views the authorities extending over the full sweep of social life, it will subordinate non-state normative orders to its own. It will tend to subordinate non-state normative orders to its own. And this subordination has colonizing tendencies. And I want to tell you why I think it has colonizing tendencies. Um, by colonization, I just mean a kind of imposition of the order of the state upon another organization that is not, does not share that order automatically. Um, so, first, because the, uh, let's say, the philosophy behind the modern state is fundamentally individualist because it's premised on a social contract. And social contract theory views society as individuals. So this is part of the philosophy of public administration and states. They tend to view society as equal citizens who are subjected to the rule of the state. Okay? Equal citizens subject to the rule of the state. So this creates a blind spot in the philosophy of governance of a state where it tends to view lots of individual citizens and not lots of groups. It, it, it views society with an individualist lens, like almost like, uh, yeah, lens, okay, or glasses. That's the first reason why there's a colonizing tendency, because instead of seeing groups, the state sees individuals. Scott James has a book, book called Seeing Like a State. It's a great title, Seeing Like a State. And he points out the state sees society as lots of individuals. It doesn't see society as a jungle of associations. That's not how it sees society. Um, um, you can listen to state bureaucr bureaucrats and officials. You can listen to the way they talk about society and, and analyze their discourses. And I think you'll find that generally they tend to be individualist in the way they see social order. Okay, that's the first reason to the philosophy. Secondly, this is more of a kind of an institutional reason or social reason. The state enjoys a socially recognized claim to exercise supreme or unrivaled authority over the social order. That's really important. So it's not just that the state thinks it has uh, superior authority or some general authority over society. If, if I thought I had general authority over society, you'd say, who are you? You'd say, who cares? Right? But if I'm a representative of the state and I say, I believe I have the authority to tell you how to manage the pandemic and how to manage whatever, the economy, then you will say, oh, he's a public official. Oh, he's from the state. Oh, he has authority. So I have a socially, social recognition of my right to rule over society. And the state has that. So that gives it a lot of power, that social recognition, to have general supreme authority. Um, and third, it ex how does it exercise that authority? With moral persuasion? With market incentives? No. With non-voluntary taxes on income and resources, with coercive sanctions, you could be put in prison if you disobey. And... Basically, that's what I have here. Non-voluntary taxes on income and resources 
a coercive sanctions for non-compliance. Um, these provide really powerful tools for the state to pressure organizations and groups to accept its rules, to accept its order. And um, to, to, to cut a long story short, um, and I'm going to give you an example of why fiscal powers are so important, just to give you an example. Okay, um, the state, so supposing the state says, okay, you universities, you're free, you're free to do whatever you want, okay? Self-regulate, do what you want. But would you like some funding? Yes, please. Okay, <laughs> here you go. I'll give you five million for the next two years or one year. Um, just sign here on this contract. Sign this little piece of paper or maybe 20 or 30 pages. <laughs> and here are the conditions. But that might violate my mission. <laughs> Do you want the five million? But it doesn't quite, it's not coherent with our mission. I'll give the five million to the other university then. Is that okay? Could you even make a little exception, make a little change in the rules so that we can have a bit more freedom in our mission? Are you sure you want the money? Okay, here you go. Would you, you sign? Okay, okay, fine, I'll sign. Okay, here we go. We'll accept your regulations. Um, it's difficult to, to say no to money, and the state has lots of money. So it can give lots of money, and people can then say yes or no to its money. But usually there's a condition for saying yes to the money. So that's a really useful uh, way of changing people's behavior and of introducing your rules into an organization. So what is the kind of the bottom line? So where am I going with all of this? I guess... Um, I'm going to the ideal of what I consider to be a free and open society. A free and open society. And there are three principles that I want to suggest would be appropriate and would respect the complexity of order, of social order, and the independence of different normative orders. One is individual and corporate voluntarism. That means that social exchange and coordination is conducted based on free consenting individuals and groups. We give our consent. The consent can't be perfect because obviously sometimes you have to get a big majority. You won't get 100% uh, for an arrangement. But certainly the institutional structure should be consented to by all of the main stakeholders according to this, the institutional structure should be consented to. Um, and should be consented to from the bottom up. So it's a kind of federated view that, you know, small groups can delegate authority upwards into larger groups. And those larger groups can become their representatives and their agents. Um, okay. Uh, this works at the individual level because... For me to join a group, normally I consent to join a group. I can't really consent if I live in a city. It's more complicated, maybe, if I am born into a city. But, but I consent to join a group. And then that group consents to be part of 
say, a regional order, um, it consents to, could submit to certain forms of regulation, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what I'm calling individual and corporate voluntarism. As second principle, um, a preference for proximity of rulers to rule. So the people ruling an activity should be close to the activity. They should be familiar with the activity. Um, they should not be too remote from the activity. So uh, um, maybe an extreme example is the diplomatic service in Venezuela. So basically, the diplomatic service in Venezuela, um, uh, say Chavez, uh, when he decided, when Chavez, what he said was, I will have personal power to hire or fire every part of the diplomatic service. And if you don't agree with my politics, you're gone. And he put a lot of people into the diplomatic service who had no training, no education in anything to do with diplomacy or, or because they were his political friends. Now, what happened there was one man who was at the top made a unilateral decision about all the hiring decisions of his diplomatic service without knowing anything about the details of each, you know, the details of each, uh, say, diplomatic mission, each embassy, et cetera, et cetera. He sent someone to get his will done in each embassy. Now, you could say it's a sovereign state. He's the ruler. So, of course, he has the right to do that. That's not the point. That's not the point. I'm not talking about legal rights here. I'm talking about social order. What is the best way to run, to organize social order? And that is an example of a ruler who is very removed from the daily activities of diplomats, cutting through all of the intermediate structures and just deciding, I'll put you here and you here. You're my friend. I put you there. I know nothing about what's needed for that diplomatic mission, but I do it anyway because I have power. Um, so you might get from this, this gives you an idea of a hint of why volunteerism is important. Because in this case, this man has so much power that he can cut through all of the regulatory structures and he can just decide who goes where. Um, a volunteerism, a bottom-up type of volunteerism that gives a lot of uh, discretion to local actors would basically say, like, how would you apply this to a diplomatic service, let's say? It would be a lot of deference to people on the ground. So the person who's heading an embassy, I would say, I trust you. You make the call about who you hire in your embassy. It, maybe I'll suggest you somebody, but you need to agree. That's a, that's a voluntarist approach to, to governance. And then the last one, well, actually, it's pretty much similar, is bottom-up delegation and control of power and authority. It's not really the same. It's different. Bottom-up delegation, all that means is that when I alienate power, when I, when I give power, surrender power and authority, I do it from the bottom. The person at the bottom says, I want to give more power to the municipality. The municipality says, I want to give more power to the canton. The canton says, I want to give more power to the region because it will help me. The region says, I want to give more power to the federal council, the federal government, because we need this coordination. So there's an interesting epistemology here, or a theory of knowledge, or a kind of an idea of knowledge and how it works. And the idea is basically this, that coordination works best when 
um, the individual, uh, let's say the structure of, gov- of a government should not be fixed for all time. It should be somewhat flexible and local actors should be able to surrender power upwards because for them, it's functional to surrender power because they see the need to surrender their power. They can't do what they need to do, so they give more power to a higher actor. Think of what the state does instead of that. The state, the, the Hobbesian state's model is that there's, you have a parliament that is automatically sovereign over the whole land. So all of that structure, all of that idea of power being delegated upwards disappears because you simply establish a parliament that has sovereignty. The king in parliament is sovereign. That's the, that's, you've probably heard that doctrine of sovereignty in the United Kingdom. Now it's kind of complicated with international relations and so on. But anyway, that is a, a, a doctrine. What does that mean for the ordinary people? What does that mean for groups and social groups? It means they're subject to the sovereignty of the parliament. The sovereignty of the parliament is not consistent with a free and open society because the sovereignty of parliament removes, is a threat to the prerogatives of groups to self-regulate. It removes their power to self-regulate. Or if they do self-regulate, it's because the parliament conceded them the power to self-regulate. It permitted them. That is not how social power works, in my opinion, or should work. I think there's a kind of a, let's say, quasi-natural basis for social power, which has to do with people consenting within groups, or at least tacitly consenting maybe, or going along with their life in a group. So, um, so, so to sum up, I guess I would say something like this. A society that works well is a society that is articulated into many parts, And these parts must have independence to regulate their own life. The parts are many, many social groups with many purposes. They must have independence to regulate their own life. Um, Then they must also enter into relations with each other because they share a common space. The relations they enter into need to be maximally voluntarist with each other. And when power is accumulated high up, That accumulation must be justified by a bottom-up authorization from groups. So, for example, uh, if you want to think, what's a radical implication of this? I'll give you a radical implication. A municipality, Katvaikanze, since I'm living there right now, if they decide we want to leave the Netherlands, I'm going to give you, I know it sounds ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous. But let's just say, a lot of people might be happy with that choice. But anyway, if they decide we want to leave the Netherlands and we want to negotiate um, other multilateral international relations, we want to enter into, say, uh, alliances with other towns um, that might be international alliances or whatever, um, what, would the, what would the reaction of the Netherlands be? Okay, if I was... In the, in, the, in the government, if I was advising them from, let's say, an ideal, somewhat ideal perspective, I would say to them, don't worry about it. Honestly, don't worry about it. Because if they, if they decide that they want to leave, the first thing they're going to have to do is renegotiate all of their relationships. And it's going to be really costly for them. 
In fact, probably they will never leave. They will probably never leave because it will be just so costly for them. And if they really decide that they really want to leave, even though they have to pay a really high price, then let them. Let them leave. Maybe they'll come back later. Um, unless you think that they have guerrilla warfare, that we're going to have guerrilla warfare, and that the people in Katwijk are going to be, uh, you know, paramilitary, foreign paramilitary groups. If, if it's not a public security issue, just let them. Let them do what they want. And, um, and probably they'll discover that they need to form a lot of agreements with the, with, with, you know, with the Dutch government uh, that will probably end up being de facto very similar to being part of the Netherlands. Anyway, um, so I'm giving a kind of a somewhat state-centered view of this right now. That's my state-centered defense. But from a freedom point of view, even, I would say, um, what is the big threat? What is the big danger if they really want to go? Um, they'll probably keep on doing commerce. They'll, their little shops will stay open. They'll have their own fiscal regime in there. Life will go on. But I think we have this mentality that, oh my God, if, if there's a fragmentation, everything will collapse. It will be anarchy. Spanish people believe this. Many Spanish people believe this. That's why they think Catalonia is so dangerous. Um, what if Catalonia leaves? Will it be the end of the world for Spain? Will Span Spain completely collapse? Well, I think there's a long argument about that we could have, which we can't have probably here now. But it's a radical implication. But there are less radical implications to do with how you design government policy, um, how you, you know, uh, assist different groups in achieving their purposes, how you think, what you think the purpose of government policy is, what are you trying to achieve exactly, how you manage a pandemic. All of these things are directly uh, re relevant to this perspective. And if you apply this perspective, this bottom-up, participatory, uh, kind of complex uh, perspective, you will get a lot of social experimentation, a lot more chaos, but also a lot more kind of adaptability um, and flexibility.